Hi, Carter. So I, I have this memory <clears throat> from my childhood, not, not at one specific time, but something that probably occurred numerous times. I can distinctly remember laying on the grass, this hot summer day, looking up at the blue sky and, and trying to, to look up past the jet contrails and the clouds up there. And I would stare up there and, and, uh, and I would think, that goes on forever. If I could somehow throw this football and it could escape gravity, it would just keep going forever and ever and ever. And, and sometimes I would feel like I had to put my arms out and hold onto the earth to keep from getting flung out into the void. And I probably, after a while, had to go inside and focus on my mind and, mind and eyes on something smaller like baseball cards or Star Wars figures. If you can connect with that memory at all, then today's message might speak to you. And if not, it might seem kind of weird, but at least you'll have some uh, interesting books you might want to read by the beach this summer. So, um, first of all, I need to know my audience. Uh, next slide there. Um, uh, I, I want to find out who, when you looked at the bulletin, knew immediately the significance of this little green icon. Ra raise your hand if you knew. Okay, good. A couple, handful. All right. So for those that didn't raise your hand, a little quick tutorial. This icon is the symbol of a very popular and influential book from which I've drawn my HVAC manual material for today. Here's a description of this book. The book is a guidebook, a travel book. It is one of the most remarkable and certainly the most successful books ever to come out of the great publishing corporations of Ursa Minor. In many of the more relaxed civilizations on the outer eastern rim of the galaxy, it has long supplanted the great Encyclopedia Galactica as the standard repository of all wisdom. For though it has many omissions and contains much that is apocryphal, or at least wildly inaccurate, it scores over the older and more pedestrian work in two important respects. First, it is slightly cheaper, and second, it has the words, don't panic, printed in large, friendly letters on its cover. It is, of course, the invaluable companion for all those who want to see the marvels of the known universe for less than 30 Altarian dollars a day, the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So this uh, description I've read uh, describes the fictitious Hitchhiker's Guide, which is uh, an important plot element in the real-life Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which is a, uh, a book by the British humorist Douglas Adams. started off as a radio show, which spawned the book, which spawned more books and, and computer games and movies and, and things. Uh, this first sequel was called The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. Uh, and next came the very uh, modestly titled Life, the Universe, and Everything, which was originally billed as the cosmic conclusion to the Hitchhiker's Trilogy. But then along came uh, So Long and Thanks for All the Fish, the fourth book in the trilogy, and then a few years later, Mostly Harmless, subtitled the fifth book in the increasingly inaccurately named Hitchhiker's Trilogy. Um, soon thereafter, uh, Douglas Adams died at a, at a relatively young age, 49, there were still a lot of loose ends and mostly harmless, and he probably would have written more books, 
Uh, in fact, I recently learned that another author has written a sixth book called And Another Thing, uh, with the permission of Adam's estate, um, and it is book six of three. Haven't read that one yet, um, so that may be my beach book this summer. Um, so my focus today is on the second book, which is the restaurant of the un- restaurant at the end of the universe. Who's who's read restaurant at the end of the universe? Okay. Um, so the book begins like this. There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There's another theory which states that this has already happened. The story so far. In the beginning, the universe was created. This has made a lot of people very angry and been widely regarded as a bad move. Many races believe it was created by some sort of god, though the Jatravartid people of Viltvodal VI believe that the entire universe was, in fact, sneezed out of the nose of a being called the Great Green Arkel Seizure. The Jatravartids live in perpetual fear of the time they call the coming of the Great White Handkerchief. So you can get a feel in this first paragraph of Douglas Adams' uh, faith perspective right off the bat. Poking fun at at religion is a feature that recurs from time to time throughout the series. So clearly these are not Christian books. As works of satire, I've always taken uh, these jabs as good-natured and often thought-provoking wit. And I think it's healthy to be able to laugh at ourselves. And we have to remember that the central tenets of our faith, foolish God's wisdom, foolishness to mankind, though not funny are maybe laughably preposterous from a human perspective. However, in researching this sermon, I've come to realize that Adams uh, is definitely, decidedly not laughing with us. Um, Douglas Adams, next slide. Douglas Adams uh, is the uh, son of a a, a seminary teacher, and he grew up a devout Christian, but he he slipped into uh, agnosticism in his early adulthood, which eventually hardened into what he described himself, radical atheism, uh, atheism as of the uh, Richard Dawkins stripe. Um, Coming to know his worldview a little more explicitly gives me some pause in appropriating his art and holding it up as an example of a uh, HVAC manual, habit, virtue, and character. So I'm not here today to somehow say that Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is an example of redemptive analogy and, that it's, and to maybe Christianize the whole story. The books are a lighthearted farce. They're a flight of fancy that don't take themselves seriously and do not ask us to either. But nevertheless, I feel like there's places in the books where Douglas Adams profoundly captures some element of truth. And that's what I want to share with you today. Uh, a little... Uh, thing from the restaurant at the end of the universe called the Total Perspective Vortex. So the idea with the Total Perspective Vortex is that, um, uh, well, let me read to you from the uh, restaurant at the end of the universe. The universe, as has been observed before, is an unsettlingly big place. 
a fact which for the sake of a quiet life most people tend to ignore. Many would happily move to somewhere rather smaller of their own devising, and that's what most beings, in fact, do. For instance, in one corner of the eastern galactic arm lies the large planet forest Olglarun, the entire intelligent population of whom, of which lives permanently in one fairly small and crowded nut tree, in which they are born, live, fall in love, carve tiny speculative articles on the bark on the meaning of life, the futility of death, and the importance of birth control, fight a few extremely minor wars, and eventually die strapped to the underside of some of the less accessible outer branches. In fact, the only Oglarunians who ever leave their tree are those who are hurled out of it for the heinous crime of wondering whether any of these other trees might be capable of supporting life at all, or indeed whether the other trees are anything other than illusions brought on by eating too many Ogla nuts. Exotic though this behavior may seem, there is no life form in the galaxy which is not in some way guilty of the same thing, which is why the total perspective vortex is as horrific as it is. For when you are put into the vortex, you are given just one momentary glimpse of the entire unimaginable infinity of creation. And somewhere in it, a tiny little marker a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot that says, you are here. So, total perspective vortex, to be able to somehow grasp that whole universe in one bite and realize your place in it. Uh, you can search the web and find all kinds of websites and videos that try to help you do this, and it was very tempting for me to get carried away with with dragging things in to, to, uh, to share. I, I just uh, chose two that I wanted to talk about briefly. Uh, first, this image here, the Hubble Deep Field. Uh, as you see, it was, uh, this was taken in January 1996. This uh, image is actually a composite of uh, 342 different images. It took over 130 hours uh, of exposure time because the light you see is coming from very, very far away. For most of those dots of light up there are not stars, most of them are galaxies. Each galaxy, you know, perhaps being as big or, or bigger than the galaxy on your bulletin cover, meaning thousands of light years across, containing billions of stars. So, so this could be, you know, many trillions of stars in this image. And if you take a grain of sand and you hold it at arm's length and point it at the right spot in the Big Dipper, the grain of sand will cover this field of space. Secondly, one little statistic. One of the, uh, the most uh, spectacular things an astronomer can see in the sky is a supernova, when a, when a star explodes at the end of its life, like, like the Death Star in Star Wars, boom, right? Happens uh, in, in a local area like our galaxy about once every century, right? So how often are supernovas occurring? Uh, well, scientists at Goddard Space Flight Center tells us that there are 30 supernovas happening every second in the observable universe. Is your brain exploding yet? Well. In the restaurant at the end of the universe, there is one person that survives the total perspective vortex without his brain exploding, a certain Zaphod Beeblebrox. 
who just happens to be the president of the galaxy and appears to have an ego larger than the size of the universe. And when he's put into the vortex, it actually reinforces his overinflated sense of self. In his words, it just told me what I knew all the time. I'm a really terrific and great guy. Didn't I tell you, baby? I'm Zaphod Diebelbrox. The book comments, Zaphod had seen the whole universe stretching to infinity around him, everything. And with it had come the clear and extraordinary knowledge that he was the most important thing in it. Now, the book offers an explanation for why Zaphod was able to survive the vortex, but I'll let you read that by the poolside. Um, The reason I chose the total perspective vortex for my HVAC message is that I think Adams nails it here with something about human nature and how we look at the world when the world becomes too big for us to take in in one fell swoop. Whether it's the whole universe or whether it's our planet or whether it's a new job or a new school or a new town. On the one hand, like 10-year-old me looking up into the sky, we can become overwhelmed at the enormity and complexity of life and the challenges we face in living it. So how can I manage my own household of six people, much less think about the hundreds of people in my neighborhood, much less the thousands of people in my city or the millions of people in my country or the billions of people on the planet? The issues that we all face seem intractable and impossible, and I'm just one little person. This perspective can lead to depression or hopelessness or nihilism, the philosophy that life is meaningless. In the total perspective vortex, vortex, I'm just a microscopic dot on a microscopic dot. I am nothing. On the other hand, we could respond like Zaphod, I am everything. And this idea seems kind of preposterous at first, But I know another memory I have as a child, and I I think many people can relate to this in one way or the other. The thought crossed my mind, what what if I'm the only one that's really real? What if what if I'm the only thing that's here and everything else, every other person, everything I see is just a figment of my imagination or just some kind of animation put here to test me somehow. It's all a game and I'm the only one that's really playing. The 17th century philosopher Descartes began with the proposition that the only thing that he could really doubt, really that he could not doubt, was that he himself existed. And his famous formulation, cognito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am, kicked off an intellectual era known as the Enlightenment, which for better or worse deeply impacts how each of us think today. After all, mine is the only mind that I have any real experience with. Wherever here is, I know for sure that I am here. I can't extend the same confidence to all the rest of you. How do I know that you're not just some kind of clever animations? How do I know that you have minds and souls and wills? Another piece of pop culture that plays with this idea in a fun way is is The Truman Show. Jim Carrey plays Truman Burbank, a character who lives in an artificial world where he is, uh, uh, unbeknownst to him, the character of a television show that's all about him. 
this idea that the self is the only thing that can be definitively known to exist is called solipsism. I think for a person to literally believe that he was the only one in the world that is real would be a sign of mental illness. But I also think that all of us, to some extent, behave as if it were true. We have this natural tendency towards self-centeredness, that we have to consciously and repeatedly beat into submission if we're to escape from it. Indeed, I think maybe a common response to that I am nothing viewpoint is to pivot to, uh, well, I'm just going to take care of myself and I am everything. Look out for number one. And so the question I've been reflecting on this week is what is a proper Christian response to the total perspective vortex? How do I maintain a proper sense of proportion in the face of a world that's larger than I can get my mind around? As I've pondered these questions, I've noticed that the Bible affirms what I think this this universal idea of of these two ways that, that humans might see the world. One place I see this tension encapsulated is in Psalm 8, which I might even suggest is a a biblical version of the total perspective vortex. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? We see the psalmist overwhelmed not just with creation, with the heavens and the moon and the stars, but with the creator. As awesome as these things are, God barely had to lift a finger. They were the work of his fingers. They were We are specks in relation to heaven. What are we then in relation to God? We are nothing. But then the second half of the psalm, pivots almost immediately to kind of a Zaphod perspective. What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Glory, remember that word, crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the seas, everything under us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So, in relation to God, humanity is nothing, but in relation to the world, we're pretty darn important. So I think we can see in this text that you can easily construct a Christian formulation of each of these two viewpoints. Each one is true to some extent, each one is scriptural to some extent, but each one has some problems in embracing it by itself. On the one hand, we worship an infinite God, a God whom classical theology says is omnipresent, omnipotent, and omniscient, all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. So getting a glimpse of the enormity of creation should drive us to our knees in awe of the creator who is, one must assume, more than the universe itself. 
in relation to that creator, we are nothing. A few bits of insignificant dust temporarily animated by God's will for God's pleasure. Our bodies destined to return to dust and our real selves, our souls, united with Christ in eternal glory, each of us adding exactly nothing to the being of God. God is everything, therefore, by process of elimination, I am nothing. Or better, I am nothing without Christ. I think the difficulty with this perspective is it becomes too easy. Psalm 8 begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. I can hardly read those words, and many of you can hardly hear those words without a catchy little worship song coming into your head. And our worship songs are so filled with the I am nothing, God is everything imagery that they can easily lose their meaning. When we sing, our God is an awesome God, we should be thinking about the feeling I had laying on that grass looking up in the sky. But it's hard to do that when the word has been ruined in the English language, and I use the same word awesome to describe the pizza I had for lunch, or the fact that I made it to church without hitting a red light. Spending some time in the total perspective vortex can help revive that sense of awe, but in this science-filled world, we can become numb to all that too. Yep, the universe is big, our God is bigger, and we can become like the priest in Monty Python's meaning of life who prays, Oh Lord, you are so big, so absolutely huge. Gosh, we're all really impressed down here, I can tell you. So the point of the total perspective vortex is not that the universe takes up a lot of space, so God takes up even more space. But on the other hand, uh, when one considers humanity in relation to the cosmos, how incredible that humans, we humans, are the one thing on this planet anyway, that God has created in God's own image, and that it is as a human being that God entered creation, and that it's human beings through whom God has chosen to execute his mission on this planet. These Christian beliefs certainly should give humanity in general, and each person in particular, a sense of genuine significance. We matter to the creator of the universe, and therefore we really matter in the universe. Perhaps one might legitimately say that since God is outside the universe, the physical thing which is the center of the universe is mankind. And that's not just all of us collectively, but me individually. Last week during our Pittsburgh service project, one of the messages our EDGE students heard in the program was that God doesn't just love you, God likes you. God delights in you in a way that's unique to you. Zaphod says the total perspective vortex just told me what I already knew. I'm a really terrific and great guy. And we as Christians, we may say that God's joy in us is not due to anything inherent in ourselves, but Christ in us. And yet, we do hear God saying to us, well done, good and faithful servant. And we all learn from the veggie tales that God made you special and he loves you very much. During my years in youth ministry, I heard more than one camp speaker tell me in each of my youth, 
as he was describing what Jesus did on the cross, that he had my face in mind as he suffered. On the cross, Jesus was saying, I love you, Steve. I love you, Darcy. I love you, Ron. Indeed, I was told that even if I was the only person in the world, Jesus would have endured the cross for me. Perhaps then it's not going too far to survive the total perspective vortex by saying with Zaphod, I am everything. Or more specifically, I am everything with Christ. I am everything in Christ. I think it's pretty easy to see where this second Christian approach to the total perspective vortex can go wrong. This over-individualization of our relationship with Jesus. I heard once that all preachers only have about two or three messages. And if that's true, one of mine, because I need to be hear this myself again and again and again, one of my messages is, it's not about me. Whatever it is, my job, my marriage, my community, my free time, my service, my place in the universe, if I make it about me, I will ruin it. So how to find, then, the balance between these two approaches to the total perspective vortex? Next slide. I'd like to take another look at this image from the bulletin and think about it a little different way. Rachel, what was our uh, theme from the service project? Reframe. Reframe, right? So we're going to reframe this. Specifically, we're going to reframe the word you in this. When you looked at this image, what did you think when you read you are here? I thought Steve is here, right? Anne probably thought Anne is here and Matthew is here. And if we were speaking Greek or German or Italian or Hebrew or any other language with sensible grammatical rules, we could know whether that was the only way to interpret it or not. But of course, this could mean you, Caleb, are here, or it could mean all y'all are here, right? And so that can be our correction to the I am everything point of view. Because, really, solipsism is ridiculous. I have to believe that you all exist and that that matters and take that seriously. I want to uh, read for you the closing to uh, C.S. Lewis's um, sermon, The Weight of Glory. And if you've never read it, this is your homework for this week because uh, anything that I might have to say, Lewis has probably said it much more eloquently before me. <clears throat> It may be possible for each of us to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them 
that we should conduct all our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life to ours is as the life of a gnat, but it is to, with immortals whom we joke, work with, marry, snub, and exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The corrective to I am everything is you all are everything. What then, the correction to I am nothing? Well, let me reframe this, you are here, when I see this dot in the universe. Rather than uh, hearing it, let us say it. Indeed, let us pray it. You are here. A few words from another psalm, Psalm 139. You hem me in behind and before. You've laid your hand upon me. You are here. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Like the total perspective vortex. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are here. If I make my bed in the depths, you are here. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, you are here. Even there, your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, for you are here. Whenever I stare into the eternal, the total perspective vortex and the hugeness of life seems about to crush me, you are here. And when I enter that next chapter of life that seems too big, when I move to a high school filled with bullies in the hallway, you are here. When I go off to college and have to learn the complexities of living on my own while surrounded by professors that seem bent on squelching my faith, you are here. And whenever I enter a new job or a new project with challenges and responsibilities that I wasn't expecting and was not prepared or trained for, you are here. When I'm facing a new legal or medical or family issue in my life that means untangling an impossibly complex web of bureaucracy and laws or regulations, you are are here. And when I'm called to be part of a ministry that seems impossible in its scope, bringing two different congregations into harmonious relationship, bringing reconciliation to a deeply scarred city, bringing the gospel to a lost culture, bringing justice to millions trapped in trafficking and systemic injustice, bringing food or water to billions suffering abject policy, poverty, or teaching obedience and love and forgiveness to one or more small children in my home. You are here. And even when my world seems small and I go to work, I fix a meal, I clean the bathroom, I read a book, I share a piece of bread and a cup of wine, 
with my neighbor. There also, though I often forget to consider it, the total perspective vortex resides because there also you are here. Amen.